0: Hello, I'm Ed Needham, editor of the fabulous literary magazine Strong Words, and this is my podcast, The Five Rules of Writing. In each episode, I speak to a most excellent writer in a particular genre about how they do it. And if you'd like to know more about Strong Words, and specifically how to subscribe, go to www.strong-words.co.uk and you'll be whisked straight to the website. Hello and welcome to the five rules of writing brought to you by Strong Words magazine. If you'd like to find out more or hopefully subscribe to the magazine take a look at the website that's strong-words.co.uk don't forget the hyphen. Now this is a podcast where I talk to writers about the five things they know to be true in writing whatever it is that they write for a living. So whether they spend their days writing novels about novelists or are working on the definitive biography of the world's greyest politician, there are some aspects of their work that are absolutely non-negotiable. Now, today my guest is a novelist from Northern Ireland whose outstanding new novel called The Raptures is due out in the first week of January. It's a magnificently intense story set around a class of children at a Protestant primary school who one by one fall ill although one of the children who is from a particularly strict evangelical household is different. It's a startling combination of tough and in some ways rather unhappy rural life, especially for a particular farmer and the extreme pressures that the community find it, finds itself under as the children are affected. And it made a huge impression on me when I read it recently. So here to talk about her book and share her five rules of writing about Northern Ireland, I'd like to welcome Jan Carson. Jan, hi.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me, Ed.
0: My pleasure. I was going to uh, say, how are you today? But you've already sort of uh, described your symptoms of something, uh, uh, something um, uh, COVID-ish. So uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll slide <laughs> past that one, I think. But uh, So the raptures out at the beginning of January, how have you been describing it to people when you're trapped in a lift with them?
1: Gosh, well, hopefully you wouldn't be trapped in a lift with anybody at the minute, but um, if I was, I think, you know, I like to say, and it's an exploration of kind of rural Protestant um, communities and very much the communities that I grew up in, um, set in the the early 90s um, and It's set in Northern Ireland, but it is not essentially a book about the Troubles. It's much more a book about communities and how they support each other through difficult times. And I particularly want it to avoid the whole realm of the Troubles. So (laughs) it is there in the background, but it's much more about families, communities and faith, really.
0: And for people not familiar with what you write about, what are the, what are some of the themes? I mean are those are those three things that you mentioned, family community and faith, are those the themes that most interest you in your writing?
1: I guess so. Yeah, there are themes that I keep circling back to all of the time. Um, I think it's it's very hard to avoid families in in novels because you know they're they're probably the communities that we know best. Most people have an experience of a family, and so you tend to write about what you know. Um, and then also, uh, you know, I grew up in a quite. Um, conservative religious rural community and I guess I've been writing for 15 years and always wanting to write about that directly but you have to be quite brave to write about the place that you come from so it's taken me seven books to get to the point of being able to you know talk about faith and religion and in the context of Northern Ireland in such a straightforward coming at it headways kind of way.
0: Yes, I mean, you, you, you. When I spoke to you the other day, you mentioned, you know, that you came from this quite, um, quite strict background. Do you, do you worry? Do you ever worry about offending people?
1: Well, I mean, what I always say is I've never, ever lifted someone's story fully and put it into a novel or a short story. It's a kind of a piecemeal little bits from lots of different people's stories, contexts, experiences. And um, I think that's what most writers do. And the wonderful thing about people is they have such a strange perception of themselves. They very rarely recognize uh, when you've lifted (laughs) anecdotes or kind of characteristics. I think we all have a different perception of who we are others do so um yeah i guess i mean i'm hoping that this book begins a conversation and to begin a conversation you have to be quite brave talking about these things so yeah there may be some difficult conversations ahead but i i guess i'm I'm ready for them
0: from strong words magazine these are the five rules of writing Let's, let's move on to your five rules of writing about Northern Ireland then. And your first rule is uh, quite a tough one, I imagine. You say, don't feel you have to write about the troubles. Uh, <laughs> what, what are some of the difficulties of, 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 or the problems of not writing about such a giant subject?
1: It is a strange bind to be from Northern Ireland. Like I I began publishing 15 years ago, and back then the publishers were like, Oh no, the troubles are done, no one wants to hear about that anymore. But you know, if you dared to write something about Northern Ireland that didn't mention the troubles, you know, they were like, Do you not know where you're from? Why are you not mentioning the (laughs) elephant in the room? And I think that's changed. Um, It's changed in a number of ways. There's a generation of writers now who grew up after the Good Friday Agreement and they want to write about gender and the environment and um, class and all the things that young writers want to write about. And I think it's absolutely legitimate that they're allowed to not mention the Troubles um, and the other big thing was, you know, with the rise of stories like Anna Burns' Milkman and um, Lisa McGay's Dairy Girls, which were perceptions of the conflict from, you know, the perspective of a teenage girl. We hadn't heard that yet, and it really raised this this thing that not all the stories of the troubles have been told yet. You know, the narrative that emerged was very predominantly masculine, quite urban, usually very political. And so there are stories out there that haven't been told yet. So, you know, what we always say is write about the troubles if you want to. But if you don't want to, that's absolutely legit as well, to, to avoid it like a
0: barge pole. And one of the um, I mean, in your book, The Raptures, you kind of make this point that a lot of these children, at least, uh, you know, they, 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 uh, you know, they're born well after um, it's the Good Friday Agreement. It's not something they've ever lived through or experienced directly. But at the same time, the, um, you know, traumatic events endure, don't they? And they, and they resonate in different, in different ways. They sort of materialize themselves, whether that's individuals or societies, they, they appear in different ways. So these children, for example, or, or the society, you write about, you know, there's sort of unemployment, there's, what, what other ways are, you know, what other sort of legacies are there of the troubles that aren't in themselves troubles?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think you've mentioned some of them, you know, the the economy here is still, you know, we were very dependent on European peace funding for a long time after the conflict ended, and I'm using air quotes because I don't think it has ended entirely. Um, and obviously the European funding is being withdrawn now. So there's an, an economic issue, a lot of unemployment. I mean, the, the biggest thing that I see, and um, the murdered journalist, Lara McKay, wrote about this incredibly well. There is such a legacy of mental health issues. You know, we have what, what's been termed a suicide epidemic here in Northern Ireland, particularly with young men. And many of them, as you pointed out, they weren't around during the conflict to see it firsthand, but it seems to have been passed on in the water or something mm-hmm. um, and and i think the other thing that quite often doesn't get covered in the media outside of northern ireland is you know there is still a bedrock of everyday violence here you know things like punishment beatings and um involvement with the paramilitaries i live on a street that has paramilitary flags on it the, the presence is still here mm-hmm. um, and our skill systems you know the schools are 92% segregated into Protestant and Catholic schools still. So there is a legacy there that's going to take a long time to unpick.
0: Right. And what sort of percentage of writers from Northern Ireland managed to avoid mention of tr- of the troubles in their writing? Is it a tiny minority or, or do? To, is everybody trying to find something else to write about?
1: I'd say there's very few people who entirely avoid the Troubles. It's, it, you know, as I said, it's kind of in the water here. So if you're not writing directly about conflict, you might be writing about the legacy of mental health issues or, you know, unemployment in the background. And, and for a lot of us, like myself, I'd count among them that, you know, in the Raptors, the Troubles is a background. It's not the story, but it forms the context and the background for the story. Mm-hmm. And that's become an in- increasingly, kind of common you know you have some amazing queer writing coming out of Northern Ireland now but those relationships are quite often set against this background of intolerance and segregation but it's still focusing on you know queer issues that would be pertinent across the UK so um, I think you know it's very hard to remove a story from the place that it's set in and the place that we write out of has this complex history of contested spaces and violence and all sorts of things. And it, it sort of works its way into the ether of what you're writing about, whether you mm. want it to or not.
0: OK, now then, your second rule, uh, Jan, you say you, is uh, it, the important thing is to do your research properly. What is what is your idea of doing research properly?
1: Well, for me, I'm terribly lazy, Ed, so it, it just moved to the area that you're writing about and live in it. Um, so, you know, I haven't really attempted ever to write a historical novel or something that involves a lot of academic research, but I like to really embed myself in the community and the culture that I'm writing about. So The Raptures, as I mentioned, is, is set in the kind of rural area, but also the 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 type of community I grew up in. So really pulling on, you know, at this stage, 41 years of experience there and even little things like um, I don't live there anymore, but my mum still does. And I quite often write in coffee shops up there so I can listen to the particular way the language sounds because there are different regional accents around Northern Ireland and there are little words and phrases and ways that people speak up in the uh, county antrim that are different from Belfast.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: love that. So it's very dangerous to sit in a coffee shop beside me.
0: <laughs> well, I think you mentioned somewhere, um, I can't, I don't know if I saw it on Twitter or perhaps it's in an email, uh, where you'd said you'd uh you'd been sitting next to somebody who'd mentioned the scriptures uh mm-hmm. half a dozen <laughs> times within within five minutes or something.
1: Yeah. Something? No, that that's a quite a common Northern Irish thing. The coffee shop I write in up there, um there's a, a lot of churchy people go to it so if it's not the word the church it's uh it's something related to it um uh-huh. and it, it's good for embedding yourself in that kind of world and remembering that you know what it sounds like and what the issues are that people are still kind of obsessed with so i guess i mean it, it's hard to say this and i don't mean to be judgmental but there has in the last sort of Definitely, post milkman been much more of an interest in Northern Ireland. I think it came around Brexit, and suddenly we were back in the news. And there's been a number of writers who didn't grow up here, who you know didn't even visit really, who've written books about Northern Ireland.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's sometimes quite hard to take when someone parachutes in, takes the story that we all have to live through every day, <laughs> and maybe doesn't reflect it in a particularly accurate way. So, I think that's what I get at when I say do your research. Like, these are the stories that we live through every day. And it's respectful to have, if you're going to write about it, to at least have put the work into researching it properly.
0: Right. So, tell me, tell me about Milkman. What, what is um, that?
1: Milkman is an extremely important book for a lot of us here. <laughs> <laughs> I think just. There, there, we were so proud of it. We're still so proud of it. You know, there there were stories in, in Belfast of people from very working class backgrounds who'd never read literary fiction at all, stomping down to buy their copy of Milkman the day after the Booker Prize win and saying, oh, I'm not going to be reading this. I just want to put it on my mantelpiece because, <laughs> you know, it's amazing to think about Ardoin being... know read about around the world and i was in daipur in india that year and met young men who were reading about um ardoin on the other side of the world so i think it was important for that and for me it was really important for the language that milkman used because it's unapologetically northern irish a lot of people struggled with it as a difficult book because Mm -hmm. of the way anna writes And yet when you hear her read, it is the vernacular of that part of the world. It's the references to things that we know. And for a long time, we were always told to contextualize things. You know, people from the other parts in the world won't understand what you're talking about. Put in a footnote, explain yourself. And I find that. Really condescending because many of the writers I love from South America and Latin America, they don't contextualize. No. They drop in Spanish and Portuguese words, and in context, you know what they are. And I think with Milkman, Anna just was like, this is a Northern Irish book. Like it or don't like it, I don't care. I'm not changing it. Mm-hmm. And it gave a lot of us kind of guts to go right. You know, I, I became a lot more confident with colloquialisms and vernacular
0: terms after Milkman. Okay, and also with the history of Northern Ireland, does it, do, you know, does it make everything sort of everything tendentious? You know, that someone somewhere is going to disagree with with with, with whatever you say, whatever you write about. You know, even if you're writing about cakes or or flowers <laughs> or something, how, you know, there's always going to be somebody that finds fault, whether that's from a research. Uh, perspective you know those you know kind of those flowers wouldn't be in bloom with that or is it or just because the, somebody is yeah. trying to pick a fight somewhere
1: yeah no we love sides there's two sides to everything in Northern Ireland I, I don't think it's even a critical academic thing it's just you know traditionally if one side support at one football team then the other side supported a different football team and and you see that you know like I've just finished a satirical piece that went in. We have a a brilliant satirical magazine called The Vacuum, which kind of takes the piss out of Northern Irish politics. And I um, wrote a a piece about a new piece of public art that was going in at Stormont. And the only thing they could agree that all sides liked was sausage rolls. So it's a (laughs) giant sculpture of a, a sausage roll. And then as soon as it goes in, there's a fight over whether we put brown sauce or red sauce. Oh, uh,
0: yes, yes. And, yeah, uh,
1: you're right back to Gulliver's Travels and, you know, do you open an egg at the big end or the little end? I, I think it, it speaks to something in human nature that we like to disagree, but it's particularly strong in Northern Ireland.
0: Very good. Now, your third rule, Jan, you say, do explore fresh angles on old stories. So what sort of things have you seen recently that you you wish you'd written?
1: well i think it's just like that the thing that i was mentioning earlier that there are new perspectives that people are much more comfortable looking at now so you know some of the writing that i really love from the north recently has been um, environmental explorations of of here so um Dara McAnulty's Confessions of a, a Young Naturalist or Diary of a Young Naturalist and Carrie, uh, Carina Dougherty's, um Thin Places which is a beautiful memoir which fuses kind of nature and her experiences of the conflict um, so it's an angle that hadn't you know no one had written about nature and what you know what the conflict did to it you know I was driving through Belfast with my mum two days ago and For her who grew up here, the actual landscape of the place was changed by the conflict. And we've seen that, you know, recently in terms of redevelopment. So there are places that I grew up with that were very... You know, had been blown up a lot of times that are now fully redeveloped and new art spaces and things. But it, mm-hmm. you know, there was there's an awareness of a con- the conflict shaped the landscape. You know, I've mentioned that we've got some fantastic queer narratives coming out of here now. So, um, some brilliant poets like Padraig Regan and Meirion McCann, um, and some really really fantastic novels. Paul McVeigh's *The Good Son* it's a wonderful like exploration of a young man growing up gay in Ardoyne. Um, so I think those have been brilliant for me personally it's been the fantastic so you know I'm a magical realist I've always been a magical realist and there's almost no tradition of anything but very realist straight linear fiction in this part of the world so having the confidence to bring what I grew up knowing about Gabriel Garcia Marquez and Gunter Grass and Solomon Rushdie who's magical kind of intervention with their politics and the, the social worlds they grew up in they were using it in a way to kind of critique and explore and challenge mm-hmm. um, and I've always thought Northern Ireland was ripe for that but when there's no kind of precedent around you you have to be quite brave to go right I'm gonna have a go at this and see how it goes.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean one of the things I really enjoyed about the raptures which we spoke about for the uh there's an interview with you in the, in the new issue of of strong words, and you mentioned this idea of, um, or rather, the, the chapter that really kind of blew me away was this one about the where you introduced the farmer uh, Alan, uh, who is he's married and he's got a couple of kids, but he's so isolated and lonely within his family. He has no, um, he has just he only, he has agricultural skills and nothing else, does he? That's all, that's all he knows how to do is plough a field and um, harvest a potato but and he just feels this sort of terrible isolation from from everything really it seems to me um how did you take that particular old story and and make it current
1: um I don't think it is an old story Ed mm-hmm. um I, I, think... I mean just
0: a story that goes back generations shall we say
1: yeah I mean I think one of the the things I spoke about you know but it being a very masculine narrative of Northern Ireland it's also a very urban narrative that emerges from Northern Ireland and Some of the rural stories have not trickled down. So, you know, these ideas of I think I've mentioned before, um, there's a term here, bachelor farmers Mm -hmm. and bachelor farmers are these men who grew up in farms, never got married, you know, lived with their mother and father. And then when the parents pass away, they inherit the farm, but they've no social skills and they've no family and nothing to to kind of run on. And those still exist. They just, you know, they, they don't get the coverage sometimes. And Alan comes from that context of, you know, he, he lives 30 miles from Belfast, from a big city, but he might as well live on the moon. Like, mm-hmm. he's not interacting with any kind of cosmopolitan influences, what's going on internationally. His world is very, very small. Um, and you you don't have to travel long out of Belfast to find those communities, even, even nowadays
0: and i remember you also told me this um a thing which really registered was that was that uh, you you work with a lot of sort of older uh men in your arts projects and you said they find it impossible to uh externalize anything about themselves they can't talk about themselves They, they they they're completely unable to share anything about their feelings or anything internal that might make them feel awkward i suppose um which which is um you know and I guess Alan is a great example of this person how does this sort of you know what when you've when they on the occasions that you have managed to uh, encourage these people to speak about themselves what sort of things have they told you that have that have really um, registered with you
1: I think, you know, most of my practice, my community arts practice is in in the city. So it's been mostly kind of urban men. I've been working with ex-yard workers mostly. And I think I was actually talking to mum about this the other day. It's really traumatic. You know, what you often find is people had multiple experiences of violence and really awful things. And what's really scary for me is that they've kind of normalized it. So they tell these horrendous stories about being blown up or being the first person on site at a shooting or something in an anecdotal way you know there's funny bits to it and stuff and I would go to these sessions and afterwards feel like I need therapy because you know what had come out of them was so traumatic but it's I think it's another side of that not being able to say anything like you either just keep it all bottled inside you or you have to turn it into a kind of performance um, and and you know that they're saying and talking but they're obviously not connecting with the meaning of what they're they're talking about because if they were they should be just absolutely devastated by what they've been through so i think for me as a, an arts practitioner it's finding ways to help people connect in a meaningful way with their stories to go mm-hmm. Um, and I had some just before lockdown, I had some wonderful work with them, um, the Falls and the Shankle Women's Centres of bringing those older ladies together to share their stories. And some of them talked about children who'd been lost in the Troubles for the very first time. And to do that in the presence of someone supposedly from the other side of the fence and feel comfortable doing that, it was really cathartic and really just such an honour to be part of something like that. And um, mm-hmm. there's, there's a, a liminal space that art creates where you're able to talk about things in terms of not definites, but, you know, um, feelings and um, impressions. And um, that's much, much more different from how we often use rhetoric in Northern Ireland, where it's, you know, about hard facts and disagreeing and taking sides. And if you can create those spaces, um, what comes out of it is obviously, it's sometimes really powerful and sometimes really healing as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that brings us on to uh, very much to uh, your your fourth rule, where you say don't let anyone tell you your experience doesn't matter or isn't valid. And it made me think very much this, these something you mentioned earlier on, there's a sort of um, gay men and women writing about their experience in Northern Ireland. So, when you come from these backgrounds, which would be the very sort of urban and violent, or rural and uh, isolated, and sort of unemotional, how uh, have um gay writers sort of em- emerged from from this very uh um, uh unfertile uh background.
1: I think there's there's been an explosion recently. We just um launched on Saturday an amazing new anthology called Queering the Grain, which is a collection of Irish poets um LGBTQ plus poets from across Ireland and it's enormous and it's like it's like a telephone dictionary which is so (laughs) encouraging to see that but you know traditionally it was very difficult space I'm thinking of the they'll hate me saying older gay writers that I know but a lot of them left you know Colette Bryce that wasn't here isn't here now. Um, Paul McVeigh lived in England for a long time. You know, it wasn't a terribly safe space to be writing about. So um it's it's healthy and heartening to see people coming back and to see the, the new scene emerging. Um, but I, I also like I wanted to talk about Um, You know, when we talk about this, you know, your story is important and it has validity. Um, I think there are these small quiet voices that get lost as well. And for me, a lot of it were, they were older women. Um, And you see that very much in the raptures. Like, I think it's a feminist text. But it's maybe not everybody's idea of what a feminist text is, because it's exploring women within these quite tight religious communities where they don't have a lot of autonomy. And a small Mm. degree of taking control over their lives is actually huge. It's a huge step for them. Um, You know, they're the ladies who make the tea and the sandwiches. Um, and they're quietly in the background and their stories never got told. Like I have a, a piece of flash fiction and Postcards too about my granny Agnes, who's passed away now. And she worked in a linen mill, which was the absolutely atypical thing that Protestant women did in Northern Ireland. Um, and she, you know, had her whole family in a two up, two down house. And, and in the piece, I say, like, ask yourself why you never wrote down her story it's because you thought you know it wasn't remarkable everyone had the same story as that so why would you write about it mm-hmm. and now i look back and think what a beautiful story complex and interesting and all its time but we didn't think it was remarkable so we didn't record those stories and i'm interested in re going back and revisiting those as well now
0: i think that's really interesting because i think older women are a great um, untapped uh resource, you know, the the the, the stereotype where wherever you look you know films and uh television programs slightly uh sort of um uh crabby uh easily shocked um uh ultra conservative uh group of people and yet uh I think I think older women are the are the least shockable uh yeah. people because they've seen they've seen everything. And and they do have these extraordinary stories, uh the same as everyone has extraordinary stories. Um yeah. so I it feels um, you know, that the the there the really are a group where, where the stereotype doesn't, doesn't quite match the reality.
1: And I think as well, like if you go deep into the story of Northern Ireland, the surface level is the man who brokered the Good Friday Agreement and made peace. Underneath that, there are an enormous amount of powerful women who, you know, the Women's Coalition, my laptop is literally propped up here on Monica McWilliams's biography. And what Monica did with the Women's Coalition was incredibly powerful. Women like Mo Mollum and Baroness Blood, who's been really instrumental in the integrated education here. And very rarely do they get statues or shout it about. So, you know, women have been largely erased from a lot of the story of even politics here as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And you also, you know, mentioned that, your, you know, your background is in this sort of charismatic Protestant community. I'm sure I'm getting the, the vocabulary slightly wrong, but fundamentalist, quite, you know, hardcore. Some people might say, what are, what are the consequences within your community of write, writing about such topics?
1: Um, I, I guess it's very hard to write from within. Um, I think that's the, that's one of the things I'm coming up against all the time. You know, we don't have enormous canon of literature from, you know, Muslim women who are within strict Muslim communities or women who are within strict Hasidic Jewish communities. It tends to be outliers and outsiders. Um, and I, I think that's hard. You know, my family are still very much part of um, that religious community and I love them and I'm part of their lives. But I'm on the edge of that now. and so it 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 constantly makes me think about my attitude to writing that i'm writing from a place of respect and kindness and fairness and i, I think that's not a bad thing to to carry with you all the time to think is what i'm writing true mm-hmm. um and also am i phrasing it in a way that's not trying to create a conflict but trying to create a conversation um And that's perhaps something that I've learned from watching the history of kind of rhetoric here in Northern Ireland. We often enter into dialogue about when we have different opinions from each other, we begin from a place of conflict rather than conversation. Um, And to, to start with conversation, you have to begin with a lot of listening. You have to learn to understand the other's perspective before you start offering your ideas on things. Right. Well, I'd hope after 41 years I have been listening for quite a
0: while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very difficult, isn't it? It's very easy to say you should listen, and everybody kind of nods their heads. But I I often find I, I've never got much further than uh, actually trying to look like I'm listening. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's quite a difficult skill. It's uh, it's not as easy as it sounds. Your fifth rule, you say don't write in a vacuum. Be part of a creative community. Now, how, how does this work? Where have you found the benefits to really lie in uh, in being part of a community?
1: um, I'll, I'll say two things. First of all, I say that, you know, I came out of a very church community and the church community for me was everything. So it was your, you know, your moral compass, but it was also your entire social life. Um, and I stumbled into the creative community here in Belfast and in some ways they probably are my church now. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they keep me accountable and they encourage me and they tell me off when I'm going off pace. So, I've loved the kind of spirituality of creative community as well in that sense. But I guess there's just this really weird old fallacy that's still there. I think that writers write in a kind of garret, in a vacuum. Some were just obsessed with their own ideas. And I find that just deeply unhealthful. Like, I love being around other writers. We have the, probably the most vibrant writing community here in Belfast of anywhere I've been in the world. I think because it's small so you can't have a differentiation between the crime fiction writers are off doing their own thing and the kids writers are and the theater people we're all together and that's so healthy because there's this soup of ideas and kind of ways of approaching creativity always swirling around and, and there's would,
0: all the collaborations and how do you use your community? I mean, do you, do you kind of st- make the sit them down and read? You know, m- don't let them move until you've read your latest chapter to them, or what? How do you? How do no, you practically? I don't,
1: I don't share my work at all. My editor is the only person that sees it. Most I just go to the pub with them <laughs> and we just talk, or we watch movies together and talk about ideas. And I think we're um, in in the spring. We're going to have our first festival. It's just about form. So we're going to get writers together, um, you know, across fiction, non-fiction, poetry to talk about how we use words. And I think that's really exciting because most of the festival's I do, you have to promote a book. This is just about language and ideas. And th- I think that stuff really generates an incredible amount of creativity.
0: Right. Now, one of the things that... Um... We, we you sort of mentioned on your email to me was that these are rules that uh they're about you know how to write about northern ireland but they might also be of use to people uh who are from similarly you know either divided com- uh, communities or communities which have a background of of conflict um have you find have you found your experience to chime with people from similar um, situations in other parts of the world
1: yeah, I'll, I'll tell you something, Ed, like the, the one thing about being a Northern Irish writer is you get put on panels with riders from other difficult places. <laughs> so um, I'm very fortunate. My last book's been translated into 12 different languages. So I often find myself in panels in other places around Europe and you'll be like, oh, oh, you're from Palestine. Oh, you're And you're Bosnian. Oh, right. Well, that makes sense that I'm the Northern Irish person here. <laughs> Um, So I find that really wonderful, like a lot of my writer pals now are from places like Belarus and the Ukraine and Bosnia, and there's a lot of mutual experience there, and a lot of stuff that's very humbling because, you know, I was 18 when the Good Friday Agreement was signed, and some of my pals were 18 sitting in the middle of Sarajevo with, you know, things blowing up around them, I had not, did not have an experience like that, it's really humbling to to be around writers who wrote during real intense danger or, you know, one of my pals was a refugee for a long time and was, you know, on the road walking across Europe. I have no experience like that. So we learn from each other, I think, as well.
0: Excellent. Now there are two questions which I like to ask uh, everybody I have on my podcast, uh, which have nothing to do with anything, but how many words should a writer write in a day?
1: Oh, that's a how long as a piece of string kind of question.
0: Um, what's what's your um what what's your what do you consider a good day's output?
1: I do two hours usually, so it, it and that can sometimes be fifty words, and it can sometimes be a thousand words, and it sometimes it can be minus a thousand words. But <laughs> uh, I don't like to overwrite. If I do more than two hours, I usually find I'm writing nonsense. So, uh-huh. two hours of actually writing, but a lot more time thinking and I, that's something that I learned a lot in lockdown that the majority of writing is done before you sit down at your computer it's it's thought time
0: right and the other thing is uh one of the thing the other thing I find uh pretty much all writers have in common is that they don't much like writing where do you stand on that oh no
1: that's bollocks I love it <laughs> like I I'm crabby as got out at the minute because in the run up to a book you don't really get to write creatively you just do interviews and articles and essays and my friends have been like what's wrong with you are you not writing um I love it it's it's that those two hours of the day are like a gift to myself and I still feel a little bit like oh, I don't know, that somebody's going to like come up and tap me on the shoulder and say, really? Like, this is not a job. You, It's too <laughs> enjoyable. Like, what are you playing at?
0: Brilliant. Brilliant. Jan, thank you so much for talking to me. I urge everybody to uh, read The Raptures, which is out on January the 6th, and uh, investigate Jan Carson, if you haven't already come across her fabulous writing. So, Jan, thank you so much. Thank you. From Strong Words magazine... These are the five rules of writing.